1: worship series tonight church we're going to be going for about six weeks in this one altogether. together the series is called in short cancel culture and King David uh, David one of the monarchs of Israel from our ancient history um, of our ancestors in faith is a really charming person according to scripture he's beloved by many but honestly he is not a good human he makes really big mistakes sometimes really, really bad stuff, and always really public. And, and, according to scripture, David is God's anointed human. So we're going to be asking over the next several weeks together, what does that mean? What does that mean about scripture? What does that mean about God? What does that mean about Jesus, who is often called the son of David in the gospels? And what does that mean for us? I don't expect we'll get to any answers tonight, but over several weeks of looking at some of the episodes in David's life, we'll be asking the questions and maybe building in our own understanding of that. And for tonight, the big question, the big guiding question for our time together will be, what if David was bisexual? This is from 2 Samuel chapter 1, and I'll be reading almost all of that chapter, leaving out some of the verses that are just conflicting complicating the plot. I encourage you to read it on your own later if you want. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from defeating the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head, and when he came to David, he fell to the ground and did obeisance, and David said to him, where have you come from? And he said to David, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, well, how'd things go? Tell me. And he answered, The army fled from the battle, but also many of the army fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan also died. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and all the men who were with him did the same. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David intoned this lamentation over Saul and Saul's son, Jonathan, and he ordered that the song of the bow be taught to the people of Judah. It is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain upon your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, the daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor bounteous fields, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul anointed with oil no more. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, nor the sword of Saul return empty Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Oh, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in crimson, in luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain upon your high places, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's a content consideration for the sermon tonight. In the middle of the sermon, there will be a report of a father's homophobic rant. It's nothing that you haven't heard before, but maybe you didn't come here for that tonight. (laughs) I assure you that in context, it is meant to make things better, not worse. Do you believe in love at first sight? Okay, okay, maybe not love, but that thing that is almost like being in love when someone walks into a room and all of a sudden your heart sort of takes flight and your skin tingles, your heart pounds, your stomach drops, little beads of sweat form on your upper lip. Your mind turns into a swirl of color and light. There are no clear thoughts coming through. If someone asks you your name in this moment, you might not remember it. And if you're standing up, when it happens to you, you just sink into the nearest chair because your legs are shaky and your head feels funny. And then someone close to you asks if you're okay, do you need some water or something? And you say, shh. And you know that it's not only the desire of one body for another body, maybe not even that if you are ace, because you think to yourself, this could be it. They could be the one. This could be not just tonight. But the rest of my life, and oh God, oh God, if you are listening, if you exist at all, and if you are good like they say you are, please, 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 please let this happen. And as if in slow motion, they turn to face you and meet your gaze, and they flash that smile on you that was invented just for you just for this moment and next thing you know it's like God's own Holy Spirit has whipped out her knitting needles and started knit one purling two your very own souls together now and you are ready to promise everything to have and to hold from this day forward forsaking all others what God has joined together let no one rent asunder do you believe in that Because it's really going to make a difference in how you hear a background story about not-yet-King David from 1 Samuel 18. I'll tell you that in a second, but first, got to have some background for the background. It's a deep dive. When David was a little boy... This is the way they would tell it later, you know, when he was a little boy, he was extraordinary in many ways that people could see. He was handsome, he was dexterous, he was smart as a whip, and a musical prodigy, and that kid was fearless. There is nothing that boy would not try. Israel, too, the nation, was very young then. They had been an enslaved ethnic minority for centuries, and then for a while they were liberated slaves with no land of their own, and then they were a conquering army that occupied someone else's land. Only recently had they begun to organize themselves politically as a mature monarchy. Saul, who you heard about in our reading tonight, was their very first try at a king-slash-commander-in-chief, and Saul was kind of losing his grip. The pressures were immense. The warfare was constant, and frankly, God did not seem to be giving him all the help he needed to succeed. Now, secretly, the readers of 1 Samuel know that little boy David had been anointed on the head by Samuel the prophet who was in charge of such things. Samuel had said that little boy David was going to succeed faltering Saul. And then not so secretly, adolescent teenage David had recently taken up a challenge by the Philistine army to send their best warrior to do combat man-to-man with their best guy. It was a gambit that would just settle this ongoing war quickly. The Philistines guy was named Goliath. Maybe you've heard of him. Once was a little boy David down by the babbling brook. Once was a little boy David, five little stones he took. One little stone went in the sling, the sling went round and round. One little stone went in the sling, the sling went round and round, and round and round and round and round and round and round and round. One little sling stone threw out of that sling and the giant came tumbling down. That's not just me, right? Okay. So. First and second Samuel, these books in the Hebrew Bible, they were no way, no how written by actual Samuel. The stories were generations old by the time they got written down. And they were originally just one volume. Think of a play in two acts that has an intermission in the middle. In act one, first Samuel, we get Saul's appointment to be king and then his declining effectiveness and declining mental health. Alongside David's growth into a gorgeous, charismatic, appointed by God leader. Though they have met before, 1 Samuel chapter 18 is the first time that David appears officially in Saul's court to inaugurate his service as an officer in Saul's army. Most importantly for us tonight, 1 Samuel 18 is the first time that Jonathan, son of Saul, Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel, lays eyes on David. Now hear the reading, 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4. When David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was Knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David and gave his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, we'll be told again and again in 1 Samuel that Jonathan loves David, loves him as he loves his own soul, is sworn to him forever in covenant. There are eternal promises made in love for the sake of love. And it should be said here that that love is something David got a lot of. The people of Israel loved David so much that they sang songs about him. Saul's own servants were said to have loved David more than they loved Saul. It complicated things between Saul and David, how much everybody loved David. Most complicating of all is that Saul's daughter, Jonathan's sister, Michael, no E, just like Hayes, also loved David. Now, in Michael's case, it was assumed that her love for David meant that they should marry. In the case of Israel's love for David, it was assumed that David's popularity would grow and grow until he overshadowed Saul and Saul's lineage and then led a coup against the king's house. But in the case of Jonathan's love, which we're told about time and again, what was assumed about that? Biblical commentaries through the years have offered two main possibilities for David and Jonathan's love. First possibility Jonathan and David's love has been read as a theopolitical alliance. Jonathan is smart he can see early on that this charismatic young man will rise to exceed Saul's throne with God's blessing. And so he pledges to help David get there, even if it means defying his father. And in this reading of the David and Jonathan story, that's what all the language of love is about. It's a calculation of where or to whom the political power is flowing. And those who want to stay on God's good side will flow with it to David's side. Saul will spend the rest of the first act trying to kill David or get him killed. I mean that literally. Jonathan will spend the rest of act one trying to keep David safe until he, David, God's anointed next in line, can get on that throne. Jonathan loves David, it's all political second possibility offered by the history of interpretation a somewhat softer reading given to us by those who see Jonathan and David as exemplars of friendship. Human beings are meant for relationship, this reading says. Not only are we meant to love our neighbors universally, but there are special relations of love that require more from us and give more to us so that we are strengthened for the project of loving everybody. Jonathan and David are thus lifted up as paragons of masculine commitment to have each other's backs, lift each other's drooping hands, et cetera, et cetera, through thick and thin like protagonists in a buddy movie. More bromance than romance and not gay at all. There are three things mainly that make me want to say more than that about Jonathan and David, more than the history of Christian thought has afforded us. One is that neither the theopolitical nor the close close friendship reading accounts for the intensity of the narrative through the end of Act 1, 1 Samuel, and the intensity of David's lament for Jonathan's death in Act 2. Let me just try to make that case. We're told after that initial declaration of love in 1 Samuel 18 that that love between them results in three separate covenants wherein David and Jonathan pledge their fidelity to each other. Three different times they say that they will be true to each other forever, come what may, in 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 20, and 1 Samuel 23. We are told that Jonathan, quote, took great delight in David, 1 Samuel 19one we We're told that they had secret assignations out of the public eye, out in the fields, beyond the boundaries of King Saul's reach, multiple times, 1 Samuel 19, twice in chapter 20, again in chapter 23, Jonathan, it seems, was constantly sneaking out of the castle to find David, see David, warn David of his father's plans to kill David against his own best interest. Like maybe he just couldn't help himself. The weightiest, to my mind, we're told that the two men made plans for a lifetime future together, where someday David would be crowned king of all Israel in Saul's place, and Jonathan would sit enthroned next to him. And who sits on a throne next to a king? The queen. 1 Samuel 23, 17, Jonathan goes to David for yet another meeting under the cover of darkness to, quote, strengthen his hand through the Lord, whatever the hell that means. Maybe, I don't know, they're praying together, but maybe it's an ancient future euphemism that we should be bringing back, huh? (laughs) And as they stare at the stars together, Jonathan dreams out loud, you shall be king over Israel and I shall be second to you. My father Saul also knows that this is so. Alas, it is not meant to be. As in Romeo and Juliet, another story of young lovers kept apart at first by politics, ultimately separated by death itself. These violent delights have violent ends, and in their triumph die like fire and powder, which, as they kiss, consume. Yeah, there is kissing, by the way, in David and Jonathan's story, and crying, 1 Samuel 20, when they have to part and they don't think they'll ever see each other again. Now, we don't want to make too much of that kissing, as we know that men showing non-sexual physical affection to men is more ordinary in some parts of the world than it is in the toxic masculinity of our culture, but not usually while they're crying because the cruel world won't let them and stay together. I'm just saying, there is no other story of political alliance like this one in the Bible. Lots of political alliances, just no story reported like this one. And there's no story of friendship like this one either. Indeed, this is the second thing that makes me want to say more about Jonathan and David, that if they were lovers, if they were committed to each other for life, that would in no way exclude the political nature of their relationship. Jonathan would still be defying and destroying his father's legacy by signing on for David's ascent to the throne. And if they were lovers, that would in no way negate their example of committed friendship with each other. I mean, don't we love Barack and Michelle together because we can see that they really like each other? that they're friends? Is my friendship of 32 years with Lance not worth admiring just because we've been married for 30 of those years? Here's my third and best reason for gleaning more than political pact or brotherly friendship from the Jonathan and David story. I have never met a queer reader of the Bible who did not think they were lovers. Every time I have read this text with a beloved on the LGBTQ rainbow, or with a queer biblical scholar's commentary, what I have witnessed is the dawning of self-recognition. This is my story This is my song. And I have seen it on the faces of people who previously thought they were excluded entirely from God's story of the world. Cut off from the rest of the human family included in the Bible. Like that eunuch on the road back to Ethiopia in Acts chapter 9 upon reading the prophet Isaiah's description of intense scapegoating of an innocent lamb and reading of God's love for that suffering servant and wondering if the ancient text might have foreseen someone like him, someone queer, asking whether Jesus' people might have room for someone like him. And in Acts 9, Philip says, yes, because God has obviously said, yes. As with that eunuch and the lamb, queer readers find themselves in the David and Jonathan story in part because of the suffering they endure. The lovers are kept apart by politics, yes, but also by Saul's parental rage. It could be that Saul is only mad because everybody seems to prefer David to himself, that his political legacy is threatened by an outsider. His murderous intentions and multiple attempts to eliminate David might be strictly political. It's possible. But early on in 1 Samuel, Saul can see that his own son has fallen hard for David. And that, as much as anything else, fuels his rage. At a state dinner one night, he shames Jonathan for the way he feels. And if you have not heard some version of this rant in 1 Samuel 20, verses 30 and 31, you're probably not gay. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as this son of Jesse lives upon the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Now send and bring that man to me, for he shall surely die. Oh my God, that is such a 20th century fundagelical homophobic rant calling Jonathan a perversion, blaming his mother for the way he turned out, saying it's a shame that he's chosen this man, saying that it shames his mother too, and we can imagine her crying silently but afraid to say a word when Saul is raging. In a minute, this father will throw a spear at his son. Jonathan will run from the hall in a rage. He will not be able to eat for days because his father has disgraced him publicly and because his heart longs for the comfort of David. This is a romantic tragedy, don't forget. As if you could forget, if you have lived any version of this yourself. By the end of Act 1, the lovers have spent far more time apart than together, but they have not forgotten their forsworn love. David is in exile fighting guerrilla warfare for Israel's sake, but apart from Saul's command. Jonathan has gone to the official battlefront with his father and his brothers, where we know they will be overtaken by the enemy and killed. David will not hear that news for several days. A runner will come to find him and will breathlessly deliver the message that Saul and Jonathan are dead. No mention of the other brothers because really they don't matter at all to this story. As they would if this were only a political saga we were telling. David tears his clothes. He proclaims a fast. He calls on his militia to grieve with him. And being David... Being gifted and charismatic and manifesting that chaotic bi-energy we will come to recognize in weeks to come. He writes a song on the spot and commands that it be published and that everyone sing it starting now. The song laments the loss of Israel's king and crown prince, valiant warriors who gave their lives for their country. It's patriotic propaganda for sure to bolster David's own ascension to Commander-in-Chief eventually. But the last verse of the song is not about politics. It's just about Jonathan. 2 Samuel 1, 25-27. Jonathan lies slain upon Israel's high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Now we can do some linguistic gymnastics to make that one line Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Say something else. Something other than its plain sense? It's possible that in a misogynistic culture where women weren't loved so much as used, a man could say this about another man and not be gay. (laughs) But then that wouldn't be much of a compliment, would it? Your love was more to me than the love of these secondary, uninteresting, baby-making vessels I keep around to ensure my legacy through childbearing. Mm. I rather think that David is saying here that he really loves them both, women and men, at least this man, but he preferred Jonathan to all the rest. And he's deeply grieving the loss of his first, best love. Tonight, church, we're finishing with questions questions for you to ponder in your heart, questions the text opens up to us when we all read David and Jonathan's story through the rainbow lens of queer love. Question one, what would it mean for you personally if our sacred text included a story of queer love and commitment? if you're queer, to find someone like yourself, a relationship more like yours than all those lists of respectable cishet marriages and the babies they begat? How would it feel to find your experience centered as we search the scriptures together? Question two, what would it mean about the Bible if this love story were not shushed up and shut out, if our ancestors passed it down to their children and their children's children, including Jonathan's relationship with David, when the political record would have been just fine without it, could we see here the beginning of a minority report, a trail of breadcrumbs that our ancestors left for us to follow? Question three, what would it mean for the church? Not just Galileo Church, but the church around the world. And for the world, the church is meant to love and serve. If the knitting together of two men's souls were part of our sacred story, And an essential piece of the heritage of Jesus, son of bisexual David. Jesus, the Christ, whose living spirit dwells in us. What would it mean? Can you imagine that?
0: I bet you can. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps, and if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.